Appreciate it, Coop. I'll take it a little bit early. Thank you very much. <laughs> I am Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. Uh, people with nothing to hide comply with authorities, right? But then you have Trump and co who will do anything to hide. One guy is literally in hiding, Dan Scavino. And now CNN has learned Trump may try to assert executive privilege to block the January 6th committee from getting information from those subpoenaed. Lie, deny, and now defy. Remember, we define that as the triple play of Trumpery. According to the Washington Post, a Trump attorney instructed his former advisors not to comply with congressional investigators. And with good reason. They clearly may have damaging information. The Senate Judiciary Committee just made that obvious in a new report about January 6th titled Subverting Justice. It's nearly 400 pages and they have the receipts. We're going to give you some of the biggest headlines tonight, but I argue that the obvious headlines about the main report aren't the real thing to focus on. The rebuttal from the GOP is what you must look at. Why? Because those who empowered this, those who ignored it, also empowered it, but all of them collectively, they are still in power. And the rebuttal is proof that the big lie will not die. In their defense of Trump, you don't just see a disservice to justice, but clear proof that they are in service to him and his lies about the election, starting with their defense. Trump didn't do anything wrong because the coup didn't happen. This is the same lame defense the same people gave Trump on that Ukraine shakedown. Well, Ukraine didn't comply with putting out dirt on Biden to get the meeting and other goodies from Trump and the United States government. So no harm. You know, an act does not have to be completed for there to be a crime, right? A crime can be what we call in the law inchoate or incomplete, a.k.a. attempted. For example, if I try to rob you, but I fail, it's not okay. We all get this. And so do Trump's defenders. But this is not about logic. Ranking member Chuck Grassley's office put out this report. He is the president pro tempore emeritus of the U.S. Senate, defending Trump's coup attempt multiple times as, ready? Not unreasonable. Do you think they would therefore offer what was a reasonable basis for him to question the election, let alone try to overturn it? They don't. But again, this is not about logic. The proof of Grassley's perfidy, his bad faith, is clear from his past. After the Capitol attack, Senator Grassley said this, The courts didn't back up Trump's claims. He belittled and harassed elected officials across the country to get his way. He encouraged his own loyal vice president, Mike Pence, to take extraordinary and unconstitutional actions. But now his coup attempt was not unreasonable. What changed? The threat of Trump to him. Nice and slow, because that's all it is, okay? The problem, therefore, is not Trump being out of power as president. It's all of those who are still in power who are worried about his reach and his base and their complicity in helping to keep the big lie alive. 
the Grams, the Gozers, the you know, the Cruises, the McCarthy's, Hawley, Brooks, Green, Cawthorn, Stefanik, Jordan, and yes, Mitch McConnell. And don't forget, 147 in the Trump Party in Congress that backed the attempted overthrow of democracy by wanting to decertify the election with no good basis. The rebuttal report, that's the focus. That and the silence from those not involved with the rebuttal about its lameness, because that is just as poisonous. I'm telling you, the big lie could come back and be played exactly the same way in the midterms. So here's what the Democrat-led Judiciary Committee is hoping to expose to highlight what happened and therefore maybe do something about it. Trump asked the DOJ nine times after the election to undermine the election result. Nine times. Not just take a look. Not just, hey, have you seen this really obvious piece of proof? It's just do something, do something, do something. And they have the receipts. He considered replacing then-acting A.G. Rosen with DOJ lawyer Clark, who supported his fraud conspiracies. Then White House counsel Pat Cipollone threatened to quit. If the president replaced Rosen with Clark, calling a letter that Clark and Trump wanted to the, the DOJ to send to Georgia officials a, quote, murder-suicide pact. And then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows made, quote, multiple, unquote, requests for acting AG Rosen to launch election fraud probes. Again, he was pressuring him to do it not offering him information or sources that would lead to his own decisions. You see the difference. Here's a picture put in the report of a New Year's Eve meeting where Trump was threatening Justice Department leaders to overthrow democracy for him. Just three days later, three days before the January 6th insurrection, there was another meeting. And according to the acting AG, Trump opened by saying, quote, One thing we know is you, Rosen, aren't going to do anything to overturn the election, unquote. And yet the defense in the rebuttal, Trump did not use the Justice Department to overturn the election, meaning it's okay because he didn't succeed. And these people see nothing wrong with the clear proof that he tried to and had his people tried to at least nine times. All they're missing in their rebuttal with this, it isn't illegal, is the, remember this line? It isn't illegal when the president does it. That's the only thing they're missing from the Nixon cover-up playbook. But you know, Nixon didn't have this power in his own party. He didn't have these kinds of people in power worried about him and his base going forward. Trump does. So what will they do next? Let's ask a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Democrat Chris Coons, Senator from Delaware. Good to see you, Senator. Good to be on with you, Chris. It's been quite a day here in the Senate. Every day is a month's worth of uh, drama. So let's start with what just happened. The Republicans voted to end cloture, but none voted to raise the debt ceiling. They left that to the Democrats and you passed it on a party line vote 50-48. I don't know what happened to the other two. What does that tell you about your future? It means, unfortunately, that we will be right back here in two months 
needing another vote configured exactly like tonight's vote in order to raise or suspend the debt ceiling going forward. Uh, Chris, I frankly think part of what happened uh, was that Mitch McConnell became convinced he was playing this dangerous game of chicken too close to the line, and there was a lot of passion in the Democratic caucus about simply ending the rule that requires a 60-vote margin for the debt ceiling, and so, frankly, he caved. Why would he believe um, this that, gives Senator, us, when I'm he sorry? knows Joe Manchin wouldn't do it? I suspect that he had a conversation with Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema where they expressed alarm, concern, and possibly even willingness to change that rule. I don't know. I wasn't in the room. But my sense is that's what ultimately moved him to act. Here's so, what it gets us, Chris. Please. Two months when we can focus on passing President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. Two months when we can come to an agreement about how to get the bipartisan infrastructure bill and how to get this critical, I hope, more than $2 trillion package of investments in elder care, daycare, childcare, early childhood support, making healthcare less expensive, providing a tax cut to America's middle class, and making it all paid for by ensuring that the wealthiest Americans and our most profitable companies pay their fair share. That's roughly the Build Back Better agenda that we hope to get through the House and Senate and to the president's desk, including some robust action on climate. We now have the time and the, and the space to finish those negotiations and get that done before we have to turn to our end-of-year appropriations, continuing to pay for the government to stay open, and another vote on the debt ceiling. I hope we take this window and get this work done. Small point. Um, and then two big points. The small point, we had heard that you were trying to get it done by the end of October. Do you think that's yes. unreasonable? It's possible. Um, that's when the surface transportation bill expires. Mm -hmm. And so it would make sense for us to finish the work on Build Back Better and on the infrastructure bill and get them to the president's desk. Um, but frankly, it means we've got two members of my caucus uh, who need to be really clear about what they're willing to support and not and then let our um, committee chairs get to work, um, right-sizing this bill to fit within uh, the agenda of what we're gonna be able to pass. Uh, statement against interest. I wanna know every detail of how you guys talk amongst yourselves and the internecine strife and the haggling. However, tactically, is there any lesson being learned on the, on the, in the Democratic fold about how bad this looks that you guys can't make a deal with yourselves? Yes, I think it's uh, very clear within our caucus um, that we have the pen, we have the opportunity um, to take bold action that's gonna help tens of millions of American families. And the fact that it's been dragging on for weeks and that there are some internal disagreements about uh, how big the package should be and how bold it can be um, distracts from the fact that folks are eager for us to get it done and to move forward. The elements of this plan are widely popular Polling shows that the American people think we should invest in things like paid family leave, yeah. high quality daycare, reducing the cost of health care, making it easier for folks to get back to work and for families to afford the things that keep them up at night. So we need to get busy and get this done. But we have a few key disagreements we need to get past first. I had a caller on my radio say to me, only the Democrats. Uh, would fight with themselves to not get done something that American people from both sides of the aisle want done. Um, let that be uh, a clue to you. Now, one other big uh, 
policy issue in terms of getting this done. What's coming out from the former president and his people and that rebuttal uh, to the Senate Judiciary Report, that has one clear message. We don't care and we are on board with the big lie. Um, While you guys are arguing over, you know, how much money to put in this plan, how worried are you that your midterm elections are marred before they begin? That any race that they don't like, they'll say is rigged and half the country is ready to believe it. Chris, that's one of the ways in which I see our democracy um, steadily being undermined from within is by Republicans who know better being willing to stay on board with President Trump, former President Trump's big lie about the 2020 election. Look, even Bill Barr, his incredibly loyal former attorney general, has in print said that he knew that the claims of fraud in the election were BS. And what you're seeing today in this, deal, in this report from the Senate Judiciary Committee is that President Trump didn't try to inappropriately muscle the acting leader of the Department of Justice into buying into his fraud claims about the election once, not twice, not three times, nine times. And if it hadn't been for a few folks like Pat Cipollone who refused to go along with this, um, we might have had a different outcome. We came very, very close to a terrible and tragic outcome in the election in 2020. And you're absolutely right, Chris, the midterms in 2022, I think we will see false claims of election fraud widespread throughout the country. That undermines the strength of our elections and the credibility of our democracy. Senator Chris Coons, thank you very much for giving us insight into the goings on in the people's business. Appreciate you. Thank you, Chris. All right. All right. Let's go deeper into this. Executive privilege. What will it mean if Trump asserts that? Is it a kill shot to investigators? We have a former impeachment counsel to take us through the do's and don'ts uh, when it comes to executive privilege and what the options are in getting past the wall of silence in Trump world. Next. This is deadline night for the first round of Trumpers to decide if they will do what the law compels them to and comply with subpoenas from the January 6th Select Committee. The Washington Post is reporting that Trump's lawyers don't want his former aides to comply. That's not unusual. The question is, what are you willing to do? You want to fight the subpoena? Okay. But what if you want to play games? What if you want to do worse? What does that mean? Let's take it to a better mind. Norm Eisen, counselor. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Chris. So quickly, the obvious route is... I don't like this subpoena. I don't think you have a legitimate reason to send it to me. I'm going to fight to quash it in court. That hasn't been done yet. Dan Scavino is like hiding so that they can't personally serve him as if personal service were necessary here, which, of course, it isn't. So the idea of executive privilege, will that end any chance to inquire to these men about these events? Um, Chris, I do not think executive privilege is going to provide the shelter that, according to the Post, uh, Trump and his lawyers are seeking in uh, uh, informing these men uh, that executive or privilege applies and they shouldn't cooperate. Let me tell you why, and it's based on my experience litigating these issues, fighting with Trump uh, on these issues uh, as, uh, as special counsel in the impeachment, the first impeachment. Executive privilege belongs to the president of the United States. 
The courts have said in the Nixon v. GSA case that the privilege is the property of the nation. We only have one president at a time, Chris. So Trump was able, when he was in office, to tie people in knots. Now it's not your father's White House or Justice Department. And whether Trump goes to court or Congress pursues civil or criminal contempt, these executive privilege claims are not going to hold water. So, okay, so if that's not going to happen, then they're going to come in and they're going to talk, but they're going to limit what they say as best they can and they'll be coached. And then you have what we saw in the rebuttal, which is that the Republicans, they, I'm telling you, I've never seen anything like that rebuttal before. And I know this story is the main report, the nine times he tried to use the DOJ. People need to look at the rebuttal norm. That would never make it through a law school class uh, for any kind of, you know, moot court situation. They basically say, well, he didn't succeed at any of this. What's the big deal? He didn't use the DOJ. He just tried. This was this coup attempt wasn't unreasonable. Just think of those words, Norm. The president's coup attempt wasn't unreasonable in America. Chris. The big lie is bad enough when Trump and his ex-White House cronies purvey it. But when that cancer of falsehood invades the Senate, the world's greatest deliberative body, I wrote down what this minority report said because it, it, it turns reality on its head. President Trump did not exert improper influence on DOJ. His concerns centered on legitimate complaints and reports of crimes. Chris, I filed two ethics complaints this week against the other insurrection lawyers, including Mr. Clark, uh, who's so prominent in this complaint, and uh, uh, Mr. Eastman out in California. If any lawyer dared to file these statements in court, what this minority has put in the report, they would immediately be subject to investigation, sanctions, and potentially losing their license. It's outrageous and it's dangerous for our country when this cancer of deceit has crept into the minority in the Senate. So all you have to do is look at what they do in terms of attaching the proof of these legitimate claims and complaints and all that, and you see... It gets really shaky really fast. But I'll tell you what, it's the best indication that the big lie is not going away, Norm. It's not going away at all. I appreciate you taking us through this first step. Let's see what happens once we get into it. I will call on your counsel once again, as always. Be well until. Thanks, Chris. All right. Another case uh, that has us stymied. The homicide case of Gabby Petito. We have new information on when police had eyes on her missing fiancé. But a question also, if they had eyes on him, how'd they let him get away? Brian Laundrie's father joined investigators in the search at a Florida reserve. I thought nobody had asked him to help. I'll tell you, finding officials who are just straight with you these days is really at a premium, okay? We also have a survivalist. What would it take to live in this reserve for as long as it's been so far? What kind of place is it? What do you need to know? What do you need to have, right? He knows. Next. A couple of developments and then some insight into the big question uh, of the unknown right now in terms of the Gabby Petito case. 
uh, Northport, Florida police are defending themselves against criticism that they let Brian Laundrie get away. A spokesman tells CNN Laundrie was under surveillance before he vanished, but says officers were limited in how much they could act. Brian disappeared three weeks ago. Would surveillance or non-surveillance preclude officers from going where any citizen goes? The answer is no. They could have followed. They could follow you somewhere if they have a reason to, or even if they don't have a reason to. They're not going to do anything to you. If they're just watching somebody and they leave and go to the reserve, why didn't they go to the reserve? We're not allowed to do that? Says who? Please show us. So three weeks ago, this happens before there was an open homicide investigation. At that time, Petito's body had not yet been found. Here's what the police spokesman told Randy Kay. If you talk to um, a lot of people uh, who have experience in law enforcement, I mean, the guy goes for a walk in the Carlton Reserve. He's not wanted for a crime. Uh, I mean, what are, we, what are we supposed to do? We're going to go tree to tree, tree to tree, following him back through the woods? I mean, um, you know, it just wasn't there with the information we had in this case. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I don't think they had reasonable suspicion. Um, they didn't even know that Gabby Petito was dead. So was it fair to say they lost him? No, I don't, I, I don't think it's fair to say that they lost him. He wasn't a wanted man. He is now. The spokesman also says police are not in possession of the cell phone Brian Laundrie was using on his road trip with Gabby, and they don't have her phone either. Does that mean the feds don't? See, one of the problems in this situation is you have local cops and then you have the feds. For example, one of these problems with the Laundry family, the Laundry family is going to have trouble. All right. Certainly in the court of public opinion, uh, we'll see if there's any legal exposure. But the cops didn't know that Brian was gone until the 17th. OK, that's a long time because he was gone since like the 13th. But the feds did. Now, why didn't they tell the cops? I don't know. But that's not on the Laundry family. If the Laundry family is in contact with the feds and they tell them, hey, the kid didn't come home, is it their fault the cops don't know? Meanwhile, Brian Laundry's father, local cops were saying, yeah, no, nobody's asking for uh, the, the family of the wanted guy. We don't want his help. He was there today. Laundry's father took part in the search for his son. Uh, they asked him, hey, do you know any of the routes that Brian liked in the reserve? He said, yeah. So... They went and met him at the Carlton Reserve. His parents believe that that's where this guy is. I know I keep calling him a kid. It's just because I'm old. I know that he's a man and he should be treated as a man under the law. There's no question about that. But we keep glossing over the fact that this guy's been in the jungle, basically, uh, for weeks. Is that doable for this guy? Shane Hobel is the founder of Mountain Scout Survival School. It's good to have you. Appreciate you. I should have had you sooner. So people who know him and who know hiking say he is a hiker. He is a good hiker. He is a trained hiker and camper. They say he is not a survivalist. What's the difference when it comes to the context of us trying to figure out if he could still be alive in there? That's a great question, Chris. Um, Being a hiker, you're usually dependent on your gear. 
He's carrying a backpack. We don't know what's in it. We don't know what kind of um, supplies he already has or what he started with. When was the last time he had food or water? How much does he have before he runs out, before he has to replenish it? Um, and so a hiker usually carries the things in with them, a camper and that type of deal. When it comes to survivalists, this is the idea of not having any of those things and utilizing the resources that are already available on the landscape. Now, his sister, I think, believe, was quoted by saying that he is a moderate survivalist, that he's decent, but he's not an expert. Uh, even that alone can sustain somebody, and certainly in that climate, you're not dealing with the, the harshness of going to the north here, and as, we, as seasons change, he still has a lot of resources that he can tap into. Help me understand that, because, you know, to someone like me, I'm not into that. Um, I feel like I'd be a dead man sure. as soon as it got dark that, you know, I would step <laughs> into some water where there's an alligator or a snake or I'd eat the wrong thing. Um, what does he have access to if he's what his sister termed a mediocre survivalist? Well, that, that would tell me that he has, you know, decent concepts in terms of shelter. Um, there's plenty of water down there. Again, I don't know what kind of gear or what he has in his backpack. I don't even know if he has anything. Um, I'm going to assume that he does because he's a hiker and a backpacker. Normally they carry the gear. And so he's got water location and purification to deal with. He has fire, but you don't necessarily need it because it's not a cold climate. Uh, food wise, there's plenty of fish. There's snake, yeah, there's gator, so he can be on the on the menu as well. But there is plenty of a of resource that's there. And the other thing we have to remember remember is even though this is a preserve, surrounding the preserve there are seasonal homes and other vacation homes, things that could be vacant. And there's no reason why, like spokes on a wheel, he can be coming in and out of urban environments with any, without anybody knowing this, and still resupplying and going back into the reserve. A survivalist doesn't have to do that. They can stay indefinitely on the landscape because everything you need is already there. So I don't believe that this is the type of person that we're dealing with. So even if it isn't the type, meaning that he could do it all by himself, you're saying he doesn't have to, because even though to us, we're looking at it as the wilderness, there are opportunities for him in there, especially if he knows the reserve, which according to his family, he does. Shane Hobel, thank you very much. Uh, when we learn more about what they're thinking, they're seeing or finding, Please come back and give us some context because I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. So it's good to have you. Be well <laughs> Be and thank you. All right, we have some good news to report. News that could change the course of this pandemic that so many of us parents have been waiting for. Will Pfizer's request for the FDA to authorize its shot for five to 11 year olds be the big moment that it sounds like? Why would it be a big moment? What are the kind of qualifications? Chief Doctor is here, next. So the former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, says the end is finally near. The COVID pandemic may soon be over. The U.S. Surgeon General, however, isn't ready to make any big pronouncements yet. Here we go with the messaging again. He tells CNN he is cautiously optimistic. Listen. We're going to have, hopefully, a vaccine available for children. Yep. And at some point before the end of the year, we probably will have the orally available drug from Merck if things go well and that undergoes and a favorable review. And I think those two things are going to be sort of the bookend on the, the sort of pandemic phase of this virus. And we're going to be entering the more endemic phase. It's certainly a move in the right direction. If we've got good vaccines, we've got good oral medicines, we can take, use preventive measures like masks when we need them, we will be in good shape against COVID-19. 
until we aren't. Is that going to be another iteration of that same kind of it's good until it isn't situation? How optimistic should we be? More vaccines, more antivirals. Are people going to take them, right? If they get it approved for the kids, will parents, uh, reasonable parents feel safe about it? Will unreasonable parents keep their kids from it? Our top doctor, Sanjay Gupta, is here to discuss that and much more, including his new book, World War C, Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic and How to Prepare for the Next One. Yes, amen to Sanjay for finally, you know, taking us through what should have been done, which was done in a movie 10 plus years ago, which is it's coming. Be ready. Uh, Congratulations on the book. I'm sure it's going to be a big hit because what you say is well-researched and well-reasoned. Now, you feeling good about uh, Pfizer putting this in and the Merck pill? Do you believe that this is the added tools we need? Yeah, I, those, those are important tools. What I feel best about, Chris, though, is the fact that the numbers are all coming down, as you mentioned. You know, kind of in medicine, you know, you give a treatment and then you may get another scan to see is the patient's tumor shrinking or not. That's really what tells you if the treatment is working. And at this point, because the numbers are coming down, you could sort of apply that same metaphor and say, whatever's happening, all these various things, the amount of vaccination, uh, the amount of natural immunity that's occurring because so many people are getting infected, these other things, these other uh, things on the horizon in terms of getting more kids vaccinated, all that makes a difference. But the fact that the treatment appears to be working right now is good. I do want to show you one thing, Chris, because Please. everyone says winter is coming and that's when it all gets worse. So I look back at the last two pandemics, 2009-1918, and it's really interesting because it was right around this time, we could put up those graphics, right around this time that you had the significant surge this time of the year. And then in 2009, once the numbers started to come down, they stayed down. This is South Korea. That's not the right graphic. But but, but after the numbers started to come down at that point, they stayed down. Same thing happened in 1918. There was a little bit of a surge back in February or March of that year. But what you found was that enough people had immunity really by this time in the pandemic that, you know, you really started to have the cases and the hospitalizations come down at this point and not really have a significant surge back. That's the key, I think. It's happened before and I think it could happen again. So even without the vaccine and the Merck pill, do you believe it's worked its way through or are we still vulnerable to the Lambda variant or whatever comes next if the things allow it to keep replicating. We're, we're, you know, we're looking at all these, these variants and it's making its way through the Greek alphabet. So Delta, you know, is, is the Delta and then there's Lambda, there's Mu. There's some that are, look a little bit more concerning than others just based on the characteristics of the virus. But when I talk to these virologists and I've talked to some around the world, uh, they're not as worried about those as Delta. Delta was a it was a bad one, obviously. We know that. Very contagious. Uh, the way that that particular virus sort of rearranged itself to be so contagious was a problem. Right now, there's others that are always going to be on the horizon, but um, n- not of huge concern. And what we do see of them is that the, the immunity that you have right now from the vaccinations or from natural immunity should offer at least some protection against what's coming down the pike. Right. We saw those studies at Israel and somewhere else that it's waning, but they say it's still 90 percent against hospitalizations and death. I mean, that's pretty good. All right. To the book. World War C. Catchy. Now, why uh, did you want to write this book, especially with the emphasis of preparing for the next one when you know that we never prepare for anything? Well, yeah, that, that's, that's a good point, and that's part of the, the reasoning of the book. I mean, you know, Chris, uh, 
according to the Pandemic Preparedness Index, the United States was the best prepared country in the world for this pandemic. And as you know, and I'm not saying this to, to make anybody feel bad, but we did among the worst. 4% of the world's population, we had 20 to 25% of the cases and hospitalizations, deaths, all those things were terrible here. So what happened? And how do you model for human behavior? Two things. There's a lots of different ideas that I came across that I put into the book. But one thing is that we don't think of pandemics like we think of defense. We spend a lot of money on keeping ourselves safe, potential attacks, and from a defense standpoint, we treat pandemics like potential weather events. They're just going to happen. They're preordained. We're powerless. It's not true. There is things that we can do. And even going back to 2004, we had a pandemic preparedness plan in this country that we let wither away. As you say, we don't like to invest in, in preparation and prevention. But if you do, and you can even put a price tag on it, about 30 bucks per citizen, uh, you could become essentially pandemic proof. I know that sounds audacious, but I validated that over and over again. That was one thing, is that we got to treat this more like a defense issue than a naturally occurring weather issue. Second of all, Chris, um, we're not healthy. <laughs> and I know, again, this is one of those things we don't talk about enough because people immediately commingle it with shame. Not my intent. Um, but 42% of the country is obese. And these diseases of affluence, like obesity and diabetes, they put us in really tough shape for this pandemic. We think about those things causing disease later in life, problems later in life. Look at that, Chris. Four to five times uh, more severe illness in those who had severe obesity, chronic kidney disease, all these things. We, this is a wake-up call that we have to obviously get healthier. We spend $4 trillion a year on health care. If we spent 1% of that and actually addressing some of the things you just saw on the screen, uh, it would go a long way towards making us healthier and making us more pandemic-proof. Quickly explain to us what microbiome means and why we should care. Microbiome is, is the, the various bacteria and things that live in your gut. The reason you should care is because about 80% of your immunity is in your gut. That surprises people. They say, I want to build up my immunity. Well, what does that mean? How are you going to build up your immunity? Go to the gym? In part, yes, but really understanding your microbiome, why it's important, and that if you want to improve immunity, you got you to actually uh, improve your microbiome overall. It, it's interesting. One scientist said to me that's been studying this for a long time that what you eat in the morning could influence how you react to the disease that night. That's how quickly it can take effect. Also, by the way, Chris, most of the serotonin, the feel-good uh, neurotransmitter, most of the serotonin is also in your gut. Mm. So your mood, you know, aside from your immunity, your mood, your overall mental well-being is directly related to your gut as well. A lot of people know this, but we haven't executed on actually doing something about this. And again, hopefully, you know, if anything good comes from this, uh, that stuff will serve as a wake-up call. If it were the size of your gut, America would be in great shape. But if it's what's in your gut, we have a lot to work on. And this book is a good guide for people who don't want to live through this again. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, our best. World War C, catchy. On sale now. I'll take three. It's good to see you, brother. The pandemic tragically set off a new wave of anti-Asian hate crimes in America. You remember, we were reporting on it. Lisa Ling is about to put the prejudice into context with history in the debut of an all-new season of her award-winning series, This is Life with Lisa Ling. 
How deep does it go? How is she going to look at it? What does she hope for it? Next. This is life with Lisa Ling. It's back. And once again, Lisa is uncovering some hard truths. Take a look. In 1882, the U.S. government responded to those fears with racist legislation, the Chinese Exclusion Act. And for the first time in American history, the doors closed on a population because of where they were from. Chinese immigrants who were already in the U.S. became the target of vicious attacks. People show up on the Chinese settlement en masse with pitchforks and guns. They force people out into the dead of night. And literally thousands of folks are massacred because of this violence. Why don't we ever hear about this in American history books? It's not something that is part of this great mythology of settling the frontier. And a great nation is built. It's not something that makes us look good but we created this powerful, prosperous country on the backs of a lot of people. Lisa Ling is here, if I may. Uh, The gift of the show is the way you depict realities that people are able to see and be immersed in, and it makes it harder to question them then. You know what I mean? You, You have less reason to speculate in opposition when you are actually really soaked in it. And you're doing that once again. You're looking at what we're calling on the screen anti-Asian hate uh, in the United States. It's existed. It is spiking. It is often ignored. We covered it for a little while, but then people get tired and we move away. Compassion fatigue. You're looking at it through the murder of Vincent Chin. I remember this. This was in the early 80s. Um, Talk about why you picked that case and why you want to take something from the past to project into the present. Well, Chris, this whole season, our season eight, we are dedicated to telling stories, um, examining aspects of American history that didn't make it into the books. Because I've always believed if we don't know where we've been, how do we know where we're going? Mm -hmm. And in the case of Vincent Chin, uh, he was a Chinese-American man working in Detroit Um, during a time of an economic downturn in the automotive capital of the world. Um, And as a result, so many workers were being laid off from their jobs, and it became very easy to blame Japanese auto manufacturers because they were producing these fuel-efficient cars during a time when uh, the the country was going through an energy, energy crisis. So Vincent Chin is in a bar celebrating his bachelor party with some friends, and he gets into an altercation with two uh, out-of-work auto workers who accuse him of being Japanese and taking their jobs. Uh, They get kicked out of the bar. They wait for Vincent Chin. When he comes out, they chase him down, and they beat him to death with a baseball bat. Uh, And those two men never served a single day in jail or prison. Um, But that case did become the first ever civil rights case involving uh, an Asian American in this country. And When you look at what has been happening in the last year and a half in this country since COVID has taken root and uh, the scapegoating of Asian Americans, uh, violence and attacks against the community have increased over a thousand percent. There is this pattern 
of scapegoating that has existed, that has continued for more than a century. And so we are highlighting that in this episode. Um, and, and, you know, there's been this incredible movement that has arisen uh, in the wake of all of this violence. And the community is galvanized. And the federal government, corporations, um, schools are considering uh, uh, teaching Asian American history. I mean, when I grew up, we had no Asian American history. Right. And when you don't have... Um, any context for people living in this country it becomes really easy to overlook and even dehumanize them. Oh, listen, uh, and we're seeing it now. And it was interesting in the most recent wave, whenever we heard that a case was of an Asian being abused or assaulted and it wasn't done by a white guy, all of a sudden it would confuse people. Like that's the only people who can come after Asians. Like, you know, there hasn't been selectivity within minority communities and different types of infighting in communities. Um, and you're going to take that on. And Lisa, nobody takes it on the way you do. I know you open up your heart in these things. Obviously, this is close to home being Asian yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so we're all going to tune in once again. And it's good to see you, my friend. Thank you so Keep much, Keep doing Chris. what you do better than anybody else. It's an all-new season of This Is Life with Lisa Ling. Premieres Sunday night, 10 p.m., only on CNN. There's only one Lisa Ling. You'll see why when you watch. We'll be right back with the handoff. Thank you for watching Don Lemon tonight with the big star D Lemon taking on the big news of the day about what the Trump people will do to keep the big lie alive. To keep it alive. Uh, and look, think I'm going to start, though, uh, at least the beginning of my show with the anniversary. Do you know what this five years ago tonight was? What happened five years ago tonight? Five years ago tonight, everybody thought it was over. Let me go back. Five years ago tonight is when we can say nothing really started to matter. You know that old saying, uh, nothing matters anymore, nothing You really matters. think the tape resonated that much? Oh, my gosh. If you, for what happened, I'm talking about, we're talking about the infamous Access Hollywood tape. Yeah, five years ago tonight. Everyone, I was sitting, I was the person on the air saying, we're waiting on a response, we're waiting on a response. We got the thing from the president or whatever. Here's the Access Hollywood tape. We're waiting for the, for, not the president, for Donald Trump, he was a candidate then, to respond, to respond, to respond. We were on air all night and waited, and then that hostage video came out. It looks like he shot it in the back room at Mar-a-Lago or something, or at uh, Trump Tower. Uh, and it, everyone, I mean, even his own people, uh, many of the people who are hugging and embracing him now, came on this very show saying, I can't support the man. I don't see how he could do this, how he could brag. I just, I have, I have children, I have daughters, I have all these things. And then, lo and behold... Because you know who didn't say matters. it? Angry, disaffected, frustrated, and scared white people all over the country who mm -hmm. said all politicians are bums. Mm. He's no different than the rest of them, except at least he'll fight for me. He gets it. Yeah. And that's what we didn't weigh at the time. Yeah. Uh, the media, you know, took its scalps and, you know, made its points, but they didn't put a scratch on the Teflon Don. Yeah. How'd that work out for them? <laughs> Just... <laughs> How'd it work out for him? I mean, this guy is the most yeah. judgment-proof. That rebuttal report from the Senate judiciary, the, the minority members, the Republicans, yeah. the president pro tempore emeritus, Grassley, who said after January 6th that he asked Pence, Trump asked Pence to do things that are unconstitutional. That rebuttal report is one of the most embarrassing documents I have ever seen in the public space. Yeah. It is... Worse than a disservice to justice. It is proof positive of service to the big lie 
and Trump. All they had to do was put out one piece of paper that said, look, he is too powerful. And unless he comes and attacks all of our mamas, we're going to have to let him have his way. Yeah, that's what that rebuttal says. That's the story. Yeah. Well, I mean, to, look there to say that it's the worst out of all the things that have happened. You look at the damning the Mueller report that was really damning. But then you had the attorney general of the United States. Right. Um, changing the narrative about that. Then you had the Ukraine phone call and, and then you had, you know, the trying to overturn the election and, and so many, many other things to say that's the worst. Worst? Just, you, yeah, it's a this lot. Rebuttal, a this rebuttal is not the worst. I'm saying it's the worst document of its, its worst kind document. I've ever yeah. looked at because what they're saying is all those things, Don, they're all in the same bucket. He never succeeded at any of them. Yeah. He didn't get Ukraine to put out dirt on Biden. He didn't get Russia to find more stuff on these guys. And none of it worked. So what are you upset about? <laughs> what, what, why, you know... <laughs> What, Just because what? it didn't work? Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah. Right. You know, well, is, that, that, is that still that a crime? Nixon. Is there something as an attempted crime? No one said that about Nixon. Or, you know. Nixon didn't have the juice within his party yeah. that this guy does. I got a lot of news. I shall see you. You have shall make one. your witness and I will watch because Thank I love you. you oh, more than you know. Thank you, sir. I'll see you later. This- Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.